All right, our last session is upon us. Turn to pages 28 and 29 in your packets. 28 and 29, as we finish out 1 Peter. Now, in many ways, our journey through 1 Peter this week has seemed a little bit like a hike up to Flat Rock. Hmm, this is what I mean. It all began, as with most hikes, with energy and excitement. Your lungs are full of air. Your muscles are rested and ready. If you've ever flight, uh, hiked a flat rock at the start, you're like, flat rock, here we come. That's really how we began First Peter. If you remember, Dave Roy's on Monday morning read what Allie just read to us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So encouraging. You feel like your lungs are just filling with air. And then Lincoln read us this from uh, chapter 2. You are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. But just like the highs of beginning a hike to Flat Rock quickly become the rigors of making it to the top, so it was with First Peter. So imagine about 10 or 15 minutes into a, into a hike to Flat Rock, your muscles start to burn, you're gasping for air, you wonder, when are we ever going to reach the top? Because pretty quickly into the hike, you begin to feel the pain. And I don't know if you felt the pain of First Peter the way that I did. In fact, in chapter 2, Peter wrote this, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers. And then in chapter 2, starting at verse 18, servants be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. This is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. You feel the pain in a verse like that? And then chapter 3, verse 17, it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And I tell you what, friends, last night, as we looked at the end of chapter 4, I feel like the pain reached a whole new level. Peter issued some very sobering commands. Let me remind you of them. Chapter 4, verse 12, do not be surprised at that fiery trial when it comes upon you. Chapter 4, verse 13, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Chapter 4, verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Chapter 4, verse 16, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Now back to Flat Rock just for a minute. You know, for, for some of you, and I, I think it's a minority, the strain and the sweat and the exertion of climbing to Flat Rock 
is really enough. You enjoy, you enjoy that. You don't actually have to make it to the top. For you, just the journey is worth it. And I would just say, if that's you, no offense, you're just very odd. You just are. Because for most of us, the glory is not in the climb, it's in the destination. Like hiking to Flat Rock, the goal is Flat Rock. And friends, it's the same in 1 Peter. All of the commands, all of the urgings, all of the exertions have been building to this one point. And as we end the book of 1 Peter, chapter 5, verses 10 and 11 are flat rock for us. This is the destination he wants us to get to. Now, but before we get there, we have to finish our climb. Now, I, I know that you are tired. I want to assure you we're almost to the top, so just keep climbing with me for a few more minutes, and then we'll get to the top, okay? So, last evening, Peter ended chapter 4 with a verse that's printed right at the top of your outline. You see it there? 1 Peter 4, 19, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let me read it again. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And, and, and that verse introduces us to the final ascent in Peter's climb. Note the word there, entrust. That is a key word. The word entrust is thoughtful and it is weighty. And Peter uses it specifically. I remember a few years ago, uh, Shannon and I moved our family out to State College for the entire summer to head up the DM summer internship. And so we, we actually entrusted our house back to Bethlehem to someone for those two months. And so two things went through our mind. What does it mean to entrust our house to this one. In other words, what does this person have to do in order to care for our house? But the other question is, to whom are we going to entrust? So there's the practicality, and then there's who are we gonna give our house to? Now, as Peter encourages these elect exiles to entrust their very souls to a faithful creator, he's gonna answer two really key questions for you and I. They're right on your outline. You see them there? How can they entrust their souls? In other words, how do you practically, in the midst of hardship, entrust your soul to God? And then the second one is, to whom can they entrust their souls? In other words, who is the one that I am now trusting? And to those questions in 1 Peter, we will turn for the next couple of minutes. Let me pray. Father, thank you for... Our time together this week, at times the journey has been thrilling and exciting and enervating. At times it has been very, very painful and very sobering. And so, Father, as we, in a sense, finish this climb up the mountain of 1 Peter, would you help us to understand what we are to do and who is waiting for us at the end? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Your text is right there on page 28, 1 Peter 5, 1 to 11. Peter writes, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Our first point is, how can they entrust your souls? It's right on your outline. So notice that as Peter ends this letter, he continues his pattern of graciously and clearly shepherding these elect exiles by issuing some very, very needed commands. And so if you notice, in the first nine verses, Peter instructs these Christians practically on how to entrust their souls. His instructions are in the form of six commands. They are right there on your outline. See them there? Shepherd the flock, be subject, humble yourselves, cast all your anxieties, be watchful, and resist the devil. We'll take them together. So how can we entrust our souls to the Lord? First thing, shepherd the flock. Now that's addressed in the first four verses. Leaders particularly leaders of the church, are called to shepherd those under their care. And so Peter writes to these believers in the early church, and he wants them to know that as they experience the trials and temptations of living for Jesus Christ, they need to be shepherded. This was not a time for isolation or self-sufficiency. This was not the season for every man or any, every woman for himself or herself. The desperate need for these Christians was community and dependence and shepherding. What does that mean for you? Friend, if you are a Christian this morning, you need to be shepherded by the elders of a local church. One of the ways that we entrust our souls to God 
is by entrusting ourselves to those whom God has appointed to shepherd and to care for us. If you are going to live faithfully as an elect exile, you certainly need friends. You certainly need comfort and encouragement, but you most definitely need elders to shepherd you. So, if you're a Christian and you are not a member of a church or you are not involved in a church in such a way that older, wiser believers can shepherd you and counsel you, you are in a very, very dangerous predicament. Because for all practical purposes, you have entrusted your soul to yourself. Or, or maybe some friends, but not to those who have been called to serve as under shepherds of the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. Listen, friends, we, we learned back in, in chapter two, even Jesus entrusted himself to a higher authority. Remember it said right after him suffering, to, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And this is so important that Peter spends right there in chapter five, four verses setting up this structure. So, so please, if you're not a member of a church, join a church. If you are a member of a church, be involved in a church. Ask a godly older man or woman to shepherd or to counsel you. That is the first way that you can practically entrust your soul to God. Now, the next two commands here build on this. So as we entrust our souls to God, to those whom he has appointed, what happens next? Look at verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you. So those are the next two commands. Be subject. Humble yourselves. And see, Paul, uh, sorry, Paul, Peter here is being very practical. Part of entrusting our souls to God is having the humility to submit to those whom he has given to shepherd us. And again, this is no less than Jesus Christ did to God the Father. Now, I'll be honest, as a pastor and an elder, I am most often overwhelmed that God would entrust the care of his precious people to someone like me. As the apostle Paul wrote, who is adequate for these things? And so Paul's words in verse four, humbling and encouraging, if you just glance back, I'm not gonna read it, but Jesus is the true shepherd, he's the chief, he's coming back, he will appear. I and every other elder in your churches, we're just under shepherds. And so I, and every other elder need to be clothed in humility. We, need, we have to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. We must lead humbly and gently. That's the garment that we have to clothe ourselves with. But for most of you, you need to exercise humility in submitting. That's the clothing that the Lord 
is asking you to wear. Friends, it takes humility to admit that you need to be shepherded. It takes humility to act on that admission by inviting others into your life who can shepherd you. That's why as Peter scopes out life for these early Christians, what does it mean for us? It's not enough to watch church online. It's not enough just to go occasionally. It's not enough to attend, but then you really only interact with your, your friends and your peers. It's not enough. And so you need to be subject to the elders and humble yourself by moving toward them and asking for prayer and for counsel. Notice his next command. Right on your outline, cast all your anxieties. Cast all your anxieties. So as you entrust your souls to God, as you submit to those, God has given a care for you and shepherd you. As you clothe yourselves with humility, you need to realize this, it will be hard. For some of you, honestly, this may be the fiery trial. But Peter is clear you need to take each and every worry and anxiety and cast them on the Lord. I love the way he uses the word all. Cast all your anxieties on the Lord, all of them. Cast them, throw them on the Lord. Notice Peter's reason there, because he cares for you. God's care is so great that he not only provides those who can shepherd you, but as they do that, he himself cares for each and every anxiety and concern that you have. So listen, friends, as you submit, as you do the hard work of humbling yourself under the mighty hand of God, please remember he cares for you. And his care is such that he's not only providing elders to shepherd you, but he's eager to catch each and every anxiety that you cast on him. Okay, what are the last two commands? Be watchful. Resist the devil. So finally, as you entrust your soul to God by submitting to the elders and clothing yourself with humility and casting your cares on the Lord, you and I are called to be watchful. Look at verse 5. Verse 5, likewise you are younger, oops, sorry, uh, verse 6. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you. Casting all your cares in him because he cares for you. Here it goes. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And so Peter is clear that there's an enemy prowling about, the devil is your adversary, and he would like nothing more than to devour you. He might try to devour you by isolating you. He might try to devour you through your pride. I don't need to submit to anyone. They don't really know me. I know best what's for myself. That's the point of devouring. He might try to devour you by trying to convince you in the midst of hardship that God really doesn't care. 
or that your concerns or anxieties are too small for his notice. But Peter is clear, you and I must resist him, and we resist him firm in the faith. Okay, the commands end there. That's all I want to say about those first nine verses. The commands and instructions of 1 Peter end, end there. Peter has been clear all through this letter, as he faithfully shepherded these elect exiles, this is how you must live in obedience to Christ. Now, verses 1 to 9, and I think really all the commands and all the urgings and exhortations of 1 Peter come to a head in verses 10 and 11. Peter brings them to flat rock. And as he ends, he focuses their attention not on what is before them, but who is before them. And that's how we're going to close. It's your second point, the promise Uh, Sorry, uh, to whom can they entrust their souls? The first thing under this is the promise of a faithful God. Look at verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore Confirm, strengthen, and establish you. There's so much in that verse. Note how Peter refers to God. The God of all grace. Eight times in his letter, Peter has mentioned grace. And if you remember, remember back to Sunday evening when we began, he wrote in the second verse of this letter, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Remember that was Peter's prayer. Well, throughout this letter, if you've been listening, Peter has reminded us that even in the midst of fiery trials, grace has been present and grace has been available. And now he helps us understand why. And it's because God is the God of all grace. So, If you're looking for grace, if you're in need of grace, you need look no further than God because God is a God of all grace. Look at that quote I have for you there on uh, page 28 by J.A. Packer, classic book, Knowing God, where, where he defines grace for us. He writes, the grace of God is his love freely shown toward guilty sinners contrary to their merit and in defiance of their demerit. It is God showing goodness to persons who deserve only severity and have no reason to expect anything but severity. Once a person is convinced that his state and need are as described, the New Testament gospel of grace cannot but sweep him off his feet with wonder and joy, for it tells us how our judge has become our savior. And friends, this is a grace that is so central to the nature and the character of our God that Peter calls him a God of all grace. All grace is found in God. So the God who saved you, the God who chose you, the God who determined everything about your life, the God who exiled you, The God who has called you and I to hardship and trials is a God of all grace. Everything in our life is an outflow of the grace of God. 
And not only has this grace assured us of the forgiveness of our sins, but notice in verse 10, what Peter says, this God of grace assures us of eternal glory. It's the end point. Who has called you is eternal glory in Christ Jesus. That's his promise. And, and as Peter writes to these elect exiles undergoing soft but real persecution, he wants them to understand why they can entrust their souls to a faithful creator while continuing to do good, even when that good is met with opposition and misunderstanding, and incredible hardship. How can they do it? Because Peter writes, God is faithful. He's a God of all grace. And notice what he says in verse, verse 10. God himself will restore, confirm, establish, and strengthen you. Friends, that's amazing. God himself is going to do it on that final day. Not another. No angel will have this privilege. No heavenly intern is going to be assigned to this task. No earthly elder will ever be able to share this part of your story. God himself will do it. And you know, all through this letter, Peter encouraged these exiled believers to look beyond where they were and to focus on what was coming. And here, he does it again as he ends his letter. And friends, what he writes here is what you and I can expect on the last day if you and I are resting on Jesus Christ. That the God of all grace will himself bring you to glory and bring you to himself. Now imagine, if you would, with me, that you have just had, maybe last week, a very difficult final exam or paper. For some of you, it does not take much imagination. Imagine the sweat and the tears and the worry, the hours and hours of studying and, and writing, and, and you hand it in or you send it in, you're hoping for the best, and a few days or maybe even a few hours later, you get a note from the professor, and it simply says, see me. Right. Oh no. How do you respond? Embarrassment? Shame? Your stomach is tied up in knots? I don't know if you'd be, I'd be thinking, how did I mess up? Peter wants to assure us of something. On that last day, when you see him, when you meet God, you will meet a God of all grace. And when he sees you, and when you see him, your stomach will not be tied up in knots. You will not wonder, how did I mess up this time? Because on that day, because of all that Jesus Christ accomplished for you by his death and resurrection, God himself will restore you. Everything broken in your life will be mended. God himself will confirm you. Any and every doubt or misgiving you ever had will be wiped away. God himself will strengthen you. 
God himself will establish you. Because of the work of Jesus Christ, you and I will hear those most precious words, well done, good and faithful servant. We heard it in chapter one, Peter wrote this, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now you may be wondering, how could this possibly happen? Because you and I, we, we know our track record and no way does it deserve a grade of well done. So how, how is this possible? There's this one reason, <laughs> there's one reason only and Peter nails it, the God of all grace will himself do it. It's like that hymn, Amazing Grace, remember that line? His grace has brought me safe thus far, and his grace will lead me home. So Peter is clear, this God of all grace has not only established where we are presently as, as elect exiles, but he has secured our future in eternal glory. A number of months ago, I was asked to speak at a, a small conference with some pastors from our denomination. Most of them were younger. And as I said to Focus last week, you know, you all are, are sort of at the front end of life. I'm moving more toward the back end of life at this point. That's okay. But during a question and answer session, which part of the theme was endurance, perseverance, one of the younger pastors said, so you've been in this for a long time. Is ministry worth it? Great question. The answer I said is, um, no, but God is worth it. God is worth it. I mean, ministry has ups and downs. If I put my hope in ministry, I'm putting my hope in the wrong place. But if I put my hope in the God of all grace, who will himself uh, secure, uh, confirm, establish, and secure me, then I am on good ground. In fact, we don't have time to read it, but in John chapter 6, the apostle Peter and some of the other apostles had watched right after a hard teaching of Jesus as some of the disciples walked away and Jesus looked at them and said, are you guys gonna go too? I love Peter's answer. Where else are we gonna go? You have the words of eternal life. You have the words of eternal life. So friends, what does this mean? Very simply this, your suffering your hardship, all that you may be called to give up for the sake of Christ now and in the future, all the trials that you may endure, please understand they all have an expiration date. And one day you will meet the God of all grace. You may be elect exiles now, but soon, like the Apostle Paul says, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. Friends, we all came to focus, maybe even we're here this morning with different degrees of hardship in our life. Some of you are still recovering from a very, very trying year. Others of you are anticipating a very hard summer. For others, honestly, the hardships of life are a constant no matter the season or the location. And as Peter shepherded this scattered 
church of his day. He shepherds us as well. It all ends well if you are in Christ. God himself assures that and God himself secures that. How can that help you now? (laughs) Well, look at the future promise. Look at that future promise and borrow some joy for today. In fact, there's a quote that presses in on that. It's that last quote there on page 28. Look what Mark Dever writes. In the most difficult things I have been called to deal with in my own life, the way I have dealt with them is just by going right to the throne of God saying, you know, it ends up really, really good. And then just backing up from there. I might not see how we get there from my place in a situation that causes such pain, but I know without a shadow of a doubt that it does end up there. So I'm just going to import my joy from there. I am so confident in what it's going to be like for all eternity in Christ that I'm just going to borrow a little of that for today and use it to help me walk through whatever this day holds. So friends, if you're going through the summer and you're like, is this worth it? Read 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 10 and 11. Get a vision of Flat Rock and just borrow a little joy for today. It all ends up well. Last point is this, where he ends. So he talked about the promise of a faithful God and then really quick, the worship of a faithful God. Notice how how Peter ends. In light of a God who has chosen us to be his own, in light of his calling for us to be a holy nation and a royal priesthood and a people for his own possession, in light of the promised glory that awaits us, look at what he writes there in verse 11. To him be the dominion forever and ever Amen. Now, I don't know about you, just a quick word. Look at verse 11. Doesn't that seem a little bit odd? To him be the dominion. If you and I were to write this, we we probably would have written, to him be the glory. It's just sort of normal, the glory. To him be the glory. But Peter didn't do that. He closes with dominion. Why does he say that? I I think there there are two reasons. First, he's been clear throughout the letter, we get the glory. We get the glory. That's been true. So certainly God is glorified, but he wants them to know you and I are getting the glory because of faithful service to Jesus Christ. Second, this, I think, is what the original readers readers need to hear as they lived in that looming shadow of the Roman Empire. See, it must have appeared to them that that dominion or power belonged to Rome or or to Nero or to their opponents or their mockers. But Peter, as he closes this letter, reminds them who is ultimately sovereign. Who's in control? Who has dominion? It ain't Nero. Never was, never will be. It is God himself. Therefore, friend, you have nothing to fear. You have nothing to lose. None of God's purposes in your life can ever be frustrated. Therefore, knowing that God has all dominion and he is a God of all grace, you and I must not be intimidated. We must not be surprised. We must not shrink back. 
because the God of all grace has all dominion. Look at how he closes, not only now, but forever and ever. So friends, how can you and I leave focus with courage and confidence to live as elect exiles, making much of our Lord Jesus Christ in our lives and our conversations in the coming months? How can we possibly do it? Peter is clear, because the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, he will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And so to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for our journey through 1 Peter. Thank you for the resounding assurance that what waits for us at the end of this journey is you, the God of all grace, who will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. Father, as we rest on who you are and what you have called us to do and to be, keep us faithful to the end. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.